At Rewiring America, we talk about the need to replace a billion machines, fossil fuel heating, cooking, water heating equipment, rooftop solar panels, EV chargers, all to be installed, and electric vehicles to be purchased as a necessary step to eliminate the roughly 42% of greenhouse gas emissions that come from so-called kitchen table decisions uh, that affect our nation's climate emissions and stand in the way of meeting our climate goals. A billion's a big number, maybe an impossible number to conceive, and maybe even an undercount if you consider all the lawnmowers and leaf blowers that we didn't include in that analysis. So to make it a little more accessible, we wrote a report recently that we call Pace of Progress that looks out over the 20 plus years that we have to make the energy transition and considers the way our country has made other transitions to superior technology, like cell phones over landlines, flat screen TVs over CRTs. These transitions typically follow an S-shaped adoption curve, shallow at the outset, steep in the middle, as the mass market begins to adopt the technology, and shallow again at the end when the final landlines, or in this case, gas furnaces, are replaced. And this pace of progress tells us that the challenge is a lot more achievable in the near term. If you look at Washington State, for example, uh, the state is already on a path to install about 31,000 heat pump water heaters between now and 2026. Uh, and in order to get on track for a full transition by 2050, Washington State only needs to support the installation of an additional 13,000 heat pump water heaters over those same three years. A few thousand a year, that's much more doable, especially when you consider the Inflation Reduction Act puts lots of new money into people's pockets to make these better choices. Up to $14,000 in incentives coming next year for people who make less than 150% of the area median, in, area median income and several thousand a year in energy efficiency tax credits for people who have an income tax liability. You also have to remember that people are already buying a lot of machines today as it is. We're talking about replacing fossil fuel equipment when it reaches the end of its life with electric alternatives. That requires changing the way people think about their choices and their impact on their monthly finances, their health and the climate. So the next time they have to spend money to replace or update one of these devices, whether it's their gasoline car or their gas stove, and make a choice for something efficient, efficient and electric instead. So yes, over the long term, there's a lot of work for us to do to electrify everything. But if we start now with good plans and a sharp focus for the near term, I'm confident we can get to where we need to be. We started in hard times to bring us all in into the laughter through thick and through thin for public power. I'm Paul Dockery, a co-host of Public Power Underground and Senior Manager of Energy Resource Strategy and Planning for Seattle City Life. And I'm Dr. Almaz Nagesh, the co-host of Public Power Underground, Energy System Researcher and Power Planner for Tacoma Power. Joining Almaz and I as this week's celebrity guest stars are Steve Pantano and Danielle Walker. Danielle works at the Department of Energy, where she is a specialist in the Inflation Reduction Act's Home Rebates Program. Prior to her current role, she held various roles at the Bonneville Power Administration and spent time as a planner for Idaho Power and the Energy Trust of Oregon. Welcome, Danielle. Hi. Um, so great to be here. Longtime listener, first-time caller. Super, <laughs> uh, super pumped. So thanks um, for having me. It's great to be connected back into the Northwest scene. Oh, it's great to have you. Recommended by a, a star of the underground crystal ball. So that is our yeah. connection, I believe. And my Did personal you, hero. Yes, yeah. ours, ours as well. Did you work with Crystal at Bonneville by chance? Crystal was my boss when, yeah, when she was the executive manager of the Fish and Wildlife Program and I was her deputy. 
Uh, so we got to tackle some fun issues together only for a brief period of time, but it was really fun. Yes. Yeah, so if you've been a part of the Fish and Wildlife Program for Bonneville, you are used to stress stressful situations. So this is going to be fine. This is going to be so easy compared to any conversation about fish at Bonneville. Walk in the park. Yep. Walk in the park. <laughs> Joining Amaz, Danielle, and I is Steve Panton, though. Steve is the head of market transformation at Rewiring America. Where he leads Rewiring America's research, data science, policy, and special projects teams in the quest to electrify one billion machines. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I'm glad to be here as well. First time uh, listening and joining you from the other side of the country uh, here in Maryland, where I live. Um, let's see, where should we begin? I've just, uh, well, I've just shared a little bit about our billion machine count um, and recently put one of those in my house, uh, my new induction cooktop uh, to replace, in my case, Ooh, nice. an electric resistance cooktop. So I didn't exactly get rid of a fossil fuel device, but I definitely upgraded my electrical device to uh, a new induction cooktop, which is much nicer uh, for lots of reasons that I'd be happy to talk about. Oh, so you know what? So last year, I, I finally got rid of my gas. I, I hate cooking with gas, so, so I finally got rid of it. Um, but I got a resistance cooktop. And then when I was in Norway, um, the apartment that I rented had an induction and I had so many regrets. So now I've got this brand new <laughs> stove down there. And I'm like, what am I going to do with that? Because I, I got to have that induction. It was, it's, oh my God, unbelievable. My favorite thing about it, I cook a lot uh, at home uh, for my family. My favorite thing about it is how easy it is to clean. Um, I find that to be the my favorite feature. So I had one of those smooth top mm -hmm. resistant tops before, and it was you know you'd scrape it, scrape it to death every night after you cooked to get the get the food off. And this one doesn't do the same thing. It's a lot it stays a lot cooler, so it's a lot easier to take take care of and saves oh. me you know, five ten minutes. So inevitably spill something on the cooktop of my flat glass top electric resistance it it cooks onto the cooktop but if you're using an induction that doesn't happen does it not not nearly to the same extent it might uh just a slight bit but yeah definitely um definitely a lot easier to clean you don't get that baked on gunk that you get with resistance ah that's interesting that's fascinating i one one clarification am i saying your last name right steve how do you say your it's pantano Pantano. Okay. Well, we record everything with Pantano or just imagine that we did. Uh, Almaz, before we get started, though, uh, this is our penultimate episode for Public Power Underground. And the last episode of the season you and I are going to record together. This has been fun. I'm glad you did this in the season, Almaz. I am too. I am too. That's going to yeah. What's that? It's going to be awesome not to be doing this. Is that what you said? No, no. The, 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 you, the last episode, I mean. Yeah, this is going to be a great last episode, and I'm ready to get into it. So yeah. on Public Power Underground, we talk about the electric utility enthusiasm trifecta of electrification, markets, and people. On today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're talking about electrifying everything. Amaz will ask an unscripted and unfair question in a segment we call Amaz's Insightful Question of the Week, and then we'll close it out with closing thoughts from Daniel Walker. But first, the sponsor. Almaz, did you know nuclear energy is America's largest source of climate-friendly power? Is that a thing you knew? I did not know that. I would have said hydro. Um, I, okay. Well, nuclear is probably in more parts of the country probably than hydro. Hydro is very river-specific. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very focused on the Northwest. 
In yeah, America, you're probably that. right. Yes, nuclear. Yeah. Sounds right. Love that about you. Okay. In fact, nuclear energy provides about 50% of the country's carbon-free electricity. And Energy Northwest, our friends at Energy Northwest, is a premier provider of carbon-free electricity in the Pacific Northwest. Energy Northwest's mission is to provide safe, reliable, cost-effective, responsible power generation and innovative energy and business solutions to its public power members and regional customers. Energy Northwest is proudly advancing the Northwest clean energy future to learn more do you know want to do you want to know how to learn more Amaz? yeah give me the info i need to know more okay okay let's let's learn more to learn more about energy northwest visit their website at energy-northwest.com that's energy-northwest.com okay as a self-described electric utility enthusiast i frequently get questions about things like solar panels and electric cars and whether people should, quote, get solar panels, et cetera. My response, my response has always been to go through like my hierarchy of electrification that I happen to come up with on the fly in a conversation with someone when, after they asked me. I'm hoping to get a better, better research list. So I'm asking each of you what your hierarchy of electrification is to kick off today's episode. So if there's a household that and they're asking you to do their part to electrify how do you prioritize replacement and i'm hoping your list can go through solar panels because that's the question i get most frequently and my hot take is solar panels aren't on the top of my hierarchy uh, list so i'm going to start with you danielle do you have a list and what is it okay well our list might be inverted so um so number one, first and foremost, don't electrify until you are electrification ready, which means efficiency first. Uh, this is going to not only maximize the comfort of your home, but it's going to minimize any energy use even so that when you do electrify, you already have that lower energy use to begin with. So electrify first includes insulation, windows, air sealing, ventilation, do those. Then okay. we get into heat pumps, heat pump water heaters, induction stove, also huge fan of the induction stove, boils water in a minute. Oh my God. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then this one is personal because we happen to have a hot tub. We inherited a hot tub when we moved into our house, but there's such thing as a heat pump hot tub. And I would really like to convert really? my heat pump to a heat pump hot tub and then solar panels. So solar panels is actually at the end after all those other things for me. What a, it, so, but is the electric vehicle before or after the solar panels? So it is for you as an electric vehicle after? Oh, well, that's a whole other story because I had an electric vehicle and I had the worst range anxiety. So that's for another time. Um, okay. okay. But solar panels, then my EV. Yes. Okay. Okay. Got it. So Steve, how does that list compare? Um, What's your similar list? in some ways. I'll, so I also put solar at the bottom. Uh, I'm going to side with Daniel on this one. And the reason is I think you want your solar to be sized for your fully electric home and not your home today to maximize the benefits you're going to get out of that system. So I would put that last or at least at like with some idea of where you're going to land in terms of electric loads and things of that nature before you size and invest in a rooftop solar system. 
You can buy community solar today and sort of get the benefits of solar if it exists where you live um, as a way to not have to worry about that for a while or maybe ever if you so choose. So community solar might be near the top of my list if you have that option. Uh, another easy one uh, is a portable induction cooktop. So these you can buy oh. uh, Amazon or Walmart or someplace for 70 bucks during their big sales, maybe less. Um, and you get to try induction uh, for very little, very low cost and experience it for yourself. Granted, they're not as nice as like a full cooktop. They're a little bit noisier, but you still get to experience, you know, kind of the um, how quickly it boils water. You get to see that it works. You can make sure your pans work. Most of them probably will. And you end up with even even if you don't go induction anytime soon, you still have this nice extra thing that you can plug into a wall outlet and bring to a tailgate party or uh, put in your backyard to keep food warm during a cookout or something like that. So it's a nice thing to have around the house anyway, but it lets you try induction. So that's right at the top of my list because it's cheap and easy and kind of useful for lots of stuff along the way. Um, next, I would say an electric vehicle or whatever breaks first or whatever needs to be replaced. So I'm a little bit in, uh, uh, agnostic about order of operations. I think planning isn't really important. So I would love for people to have some intentionality around the, you know, understanding how their house is and how old the equipment is and what's likely to go. So if your water heater's 15 years old, it's probably going to break any minute now. You should have a plan to put a heat pump water heater in. You can call your electrician if they happen to be at your house for some other reason, have them run the circuit to where your gas water heater is and put that breaker in the panel so you, you're ready to go uh, when your water heater needs to be replaced. Um, so planning is right at the top of the list, portable induction cooktops, whatever fails, uh, and then, you know, EVs when it's convenient uh, or makes sense for you to do so. And then maybe last on the list is solar for me. Oh, and community solar. Let's not forget that one, too. That was at the top. I like that one at the top of your list. So uh, Danielle didn't really make a distinction or maybe didn't clarify on her hierarchy whether the heat pump water heater or the heat pump would be first. And I think what I'm hearing from you, Steve, it depends on which one fails first. Or is, yeah. or is, or is older and likely to get yeah. need to replace first. Okay, they, Almaz, what's your... Wait until think something's broken. So part of the other issue, the other issue we deal with is that some 80, 85% of equipment is replaced during an emergency. Uh, so if you're going to try to ride it out until your water heater floods your basement and then you have a gas water heater, you're not going to really have an easy option to upgrade at that point. You want to have a plan and be prepared and try to do it before that happens. So, um, so yeah, try to try to get ahead of emergencies, but also, you know, it's reasonable to expect that people will wait till it's a, the right time to replace, replace a piece of equipment. Absolutely. Um, Oz, what's your list? What's your hierarchy of replacement? So, all right. So my hierarchy is informed by two things. One, um, so the house that I'm in uh, is 20 years old and everything was the original. So it was like just about time for everything to, to be replaced. And also a very traumatic experience as a child where we almost died from um, um, exhaust fumes in, in the house. So anyway, top on the list is your stove. Like I, I cannot stand gas in my house. Indoor quality, air quality is number one for me. The stove, second would be weatherization, uh, then the heat pump, uh, and then after heat pump, heat pump water heater, um, electric vehicles, and then solar. 
Um, and so, and I also believe that, it, you know, you probably don't want to wait until things die. That was my plan at first to wait till things die until I replaced it. And then I realized that was not going to work. Um, so that's it for me. Yep. Stove, weatherization, heat pump, heat pump, water heater, EV and solar. Uh, I noticed none of you have the outdoor lawn equipment and uh, electrifying any of that stuff on your list. And Steve, you actually specifically mentioned it in your opening actually, monologue that that like wasn't on your list. No, why not and where not? No, actually, you're right. That should be right up near the top too. I love my electric lawnmower. Um, my, I, I mowed the lawn when I was I don't know, maybe I started when I was 12 years old or something, um, and that thing was heavy. And it stunk and it was a pain to refuel and all those things. And now I have a battery powered lawnmower. I don't have a huge yard, but it's not, you know, it's big enough. And with one battery, I can do the whole thing. My 12 year old daughter very comfortably pushes this lawnmower around and mows the lawn for me now. It's great. It's quiet, no fumes, no gas. Um, every, it's better in every way. So that's up there too. Should be better in every way. I've got an electric chainsaw, an electric leaf blower. My yard's too big for an electric uh, lawnmower right now, but um, that that was that's on the top of it. You could buy more, buy more batteries, the second battery, and you'd get there. Yeah, that's good advice, and I like the list. Or you could not have a lawn, and then you, know, you just take that grass up every year. I say that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Absolutely, the not garden. grass. Yeah, a garden instead of a lawn. That garden instead of a lawn. <laughs> Perfect. Any other notes on hierarchies of electrification before we pivot? Danielle, did you have anything else? No, I just really like that Almaz went ultra sustainable on us. She just like crossed us all over and she's like, forget about your lawnmower. I'm going all the way to like low water plants and gardens. So yeah, that's a great point. Yep. Almaz leading the way. Okay. Take it away, Almaz. What's our next one? All right. So the Inflation Reduction Act, affectionately known as Aunt Ira, includes $391 billion to support clean energy and address climate change, including $8.8 billion in rebates for home energy efficiency and electrification projects. Specifically, Section 50121 of the Inflation Reduction Act provides for home energy performance-based whole house rebates, which are referred to as home efficiency rebates, and Section 50122 provides for high-efficiency electric home rebate program, which are referred to as home electrification and appliance rebates. The intent of the program is to save money on energy bills, upgrade to clean energy equipment, and improve energy efficiency, and of course, reduce indoor and outdoor air pollution. So, Danielle... Can you describe the Department of Energy's role in administering the programs and what electric utilities roles are in deploying the technologies? Yes, super excited to get a few minutes to talk about these programs, which have consumed my being for the past year and so happy to see them out in the world. Um, so as you said, the Home Energy Rebates Program, as they're combined called, consist of actually two separate and distinct programs, and they each have their own federal funding, dedicated funding source. So first, as you said, home efficiency rebates. This is often referred to as the HOMES program. Um, this focuses on energy savings through deep whole home retrofits. So think like comprehensive, 
multiple technologies, insulation, heat pumps, appliances, lighting, like the full meal deal where the homeowner will receive a rebate based on the amount of energy they save. The more savings, the bigger the rebate. Uh, this program does not include generation technology, so really focused on efficiency. Um, so that's homes. And then the other one is the electrification program known as HERE or HERA. So these are rebates for the installation of efficient electric equipment. Um, and there's a defined list. It includes heat pumps, heat pump water heaters, heat pump clothes dryers, induction stoves, uh, panel upgrades, uh, ventilation equipment. So this program is a little bit different because it has an income qualification and is reserved just for low and moderate income homes. On top of that is another $225 million set aside just for that program, just for tribes. Uh, that program guidance is not out yet, but it's coming out soon. So in total, each program has about 4.3 to $4.5 billion billion um, allocated to it. Okay, so that's the kind of overarching program. Um, how does this money actually get to a homeowner? So um, since we're in the Northwest, I think the, the easiest way to explain this is that it's very similar to how BPA and public power utilities fund and run their energy efficiency programs. So DOE is providing funding to the state energy offices. The state energy offices apply for the funding. Our team uh, posted in late July, we posted the rules and requirements and the application that templates that the states will submit. Uh, it's just 96 pages, Ooh. quick read. <laughs> It's just a hundred something, like, ugh, you know, but we're here to help. Um, and you I think, specifically and, are there to help you specifically, no, yeah. literally me specifically. And my boss told me, she said, you volunteer to travel to those state offices and literally sit down in their office and help them. And I was like, yes, like we want to help. So um, but I think anyone that works in the energy efficiency program space, like understands the complexity of getting these programs right. And so um, while big, um, it, we're also making sure that these are going to be high quality programs. Um, so we receive the applications from the states. We approve them. We provide them the money, and then the states are responsible for actually running the programs and providing them the rebates, just like the utilities are the ones responsible. Uh, the public power utilities are responsible for running the programs, the energy efficiency programs in the Northwest. DOE is not running these programs. So our role is to make sure that the requirements are being met, that we're providing as much assistance as we can, that we are convening uh, stakeholders and we're amplifying best practices and uh, program successes and cracking the nut in figuring out new innovative program uh, designs and um, just things we haven't thought before in this program space. Uh, you know, some states, they've, they've been in this energy efficiency space they're ready to hit the ground running. Like they've got their 
RFPs, they're working on their RFPs, they're getting their contractors on board, they're already in the space, the utilities are talking to the states, that's great. They're probably going to have their programs out spring, summer, um, and then other states, this is new for them, and it's going to take longer, and they're going to need a little bit more help, and so this is where we come in, this is where the national labs can come in, this is where other um, technical resources and implementers across the country can can come in and really help these states. Can I can I ask a question, Danielle? Yeah. Um, so, uh, is the money so the states are applying to the Department of Energy for these funds? Are, is there already like a formula that says this state will get this much, this state will get that much, or is it like like the the more savvy states are going to get the lion's share of the funding? How does that work? Yeah, great question. It's based on, um, it's a formula fund funding, oh. and it's based on a predetermined allocation calculation. And so those um, allocations were set at the very beginning. Um, and so I think, so you take that $8.8 .8 billion and you spread it across eight years because the program runs through 2031, and you spread it across 50 states, and it you know, it, it breaks down quite a bit, but for the Northwest, it equals to about 440-ish million dollars for the Northwest re region through 2031. So it's a it's a big chunk of money. Well, I wanted to get Steve in a little bit to think about how Rewiring America, how you think about these types of rebate programs and going from uh, Danielle's work and making sure we have program design and facilitation and how that actually gets to people in the field. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, these are these are big, big investments for most people, right? These people put a lot of money in their homes. They spend a lot on housing as it is, and they, you know, the the rebates are hugely helpful uh we think to bring down the upfront cost of a lot of the equipment transitions that need to happen and we don't there's a lot that won't happen without these rebates and the tax credits uh to be clear so there's they're super important to get the market moving and to send signals to you know states and communities everywhere that this is a transition that is happening and that's worth investing in right so um it's really important that the programs are are rolled out smoothly and and delivered well you know, we some some of the programs are income qualified, so income verification needs to be as seamless as possible, and hopefully, um, you know, can be implemented well because it's it's individual contractors in some cases uh, who are going to be at the table talking to um, to people in their homes about making these these giant investments, right? And um, they want some the people will want assurance that they're actually qualified for the programs that they've. Uh, been told they're eligible for so so there's a lot that goes into streamlining delivery i know doe and and the states are being really thoughtful about this and um being creative with solutions and trying to streamline as much as as much as they can so that people's experiences are good that includes the homeowners and the contractors and the distributors and the manufacturers as well right there's a big supply chain for these technologies that needs to to move in line but but you know as these programs roll out, um, that's that's a big deal for the market, right? It says this is real, this is happening, this is the way the world's moving now. Um, we will start to hopefully see a lot of these participants in the transition. Again, those contractors and um, uh, uh, 
training, you know, schools that train installation technicians, um, planning to train them on heat pumps so they're ready to work in these markets, um, distributors stocking more diverse products that are suited for the climate zone that uh, they're selling them into, manufacturers producing a greater variety of products at lower cost. Hopefully all of these things start to line up so that we reach a place um, in the not so distant future where we don't need rebates to support the market, but it's really just sort of the default uh, default mechanism. And I think, you know, the IRA uh, is really, really the the thing that's going to put the foot on the gas pedal for us as a as a country in this direction. Yeah, investment in energy efficiency and market transformation of energy efficient technologies is uh, right at the heart of electric utility enthusiasm. I, I did want to get a little bit more, Danielle, about like the role electric yeah. utilities can play to enable this. Like we are institutions yeah. in the Northwest who are invested in energy efficiency. Can you talk about our role and specifically this type of program? Yeah, totally. So. Yeah, I mean, this was a space traditionally owned by utilities. And so this is a big amount of funding coming into this space um, to be managed by the states. So I think it's going to take a lot of collaboration for us to like all play in the sandbox um, really well together. And that, um, like that there's just so much opportunity, right? Like there's, there's, we're going to bump into each other, but there's just so much opportunity really um, for us to combine efforts and have a greater success. So, um, you know, I think we have to what? be soup. Oh, so, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I wanted to know where the, where in the sandbox, how do we play well in the sandbox, Danielle? What's your recommendation for playing well in the sandbox? Where do we need to go? What do we need to do? Well, I have a list right here, Paul. That's so, what I expected. And then you're like, get list. to the list, Danielle. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So um, I think a huge one is where state funding can fill in the gaps um, of existing programs that uh, utilities only have so much budget. And so, and there may be areas where they're struggling. And so how can this additional funding that doesn't have cost effectiveness requirements, which can be a big barrier for utilities, how can those, you know, play with each other and fill in those spaces? How can this money be used to explore new program designs that utilities have always wanted to do, but haven't gotten to? Um, where can utilities provide their 40 years of experience and lessons learned to the states to say, hey, do this, don't do this. Like we've tried that, it didn't work. Um, how can the utilities offer up and allow states to leverage their contractor networks, their um, infrastructure, their systems, their relationships with manufacturers and distributors and industry partners? Um, and then, um, yeah, that's my list. It's a great list. Take it away, Almaz. Okay. Rewiring America has a savings calculator that translates the Inflation Reduction Act programs into bill savings based on an individual's circumstances. So, Stephen, you lead the research, data science, policy, and special projects teams for Rewiring America. How much work went into the calculator and what are the biggest value movers for individuals looking to take advantage of the invest of the Inflation Reduction Act programs to reduce their energy bills? Uh, that was that was a good bit of work, that calculator. I mean, it's pretty for um, for as many people have used it. It's you know, there's there's a reasonable amount of work that went into um, 
defining understanding the local nature of area median income and sort of you can you can go to this calculator today you can put in your uh, income level your zip code and your marital status and it'll figure out where you land on that AMI scale um, area median income scale and whether you're eligible then for uh, the full rebates uh, within the rebate program or 50% of the cost um, and then what tax credits you're also eligible for uh, based on some assumptions um, it's right now just looking at eligibility uh, for those benefits. We don't do too much in terms of um, bill savings. We're really focused on the upfront cost, but some future tools that we're developing will be looking at um, the potential for bill savings based on some assumptions about the efficiency of the equipment that you're installing, your current energy bills, the type of building that you live in based on some statistical databases that DOE uses to uh, look at the building stock in the country. So every building, every climate zone, every sort of equipment mix uh, affects how much energy your home uses, as does the weather, sort of the efficiency of the the, the building itself um, and weatherization measures. So it's a pretty complicated thing to try to um, predict energy savings. And in fact, you can't really predict energy savings because you don't know how people are going to interact with the equipment and whether it'll necessarily be installed right. So even those, you know, Bill savings things you have to take with a, a bit of a grain of salt. They're really just projections or estimates, and you have to ensure that delivery is done at high quality. Yeah, products are installed right, and contractors are well trained to be able to do things to quality standards and adhere to those quality standards, and that duct systems are designed well, and all of those things to to really get get a, a high probability of of being able to predict that um, energy savings accurately. And then, of course. Energy prices are out of everybody's control. Well, not, they're certainly not in my control. Um, so how much do gas prices increase or oil prices increase over the next 10 years? How much do electricity prices increase over the next 10 years? Those all obviously have huge impacts on um, on what happens to energy bills, as does climate change, right? If it gets hotter in the summer and you need to run your air conditioner more, your bill is going to go up no matter what. Um, so we're, we're working hard to... Uh, on the one hand, make information easy and accessible for people who are interested in this topic um, and to explain to them what these technologies are and how how to get started on projects and how to put their plans together. Uh, again, what incentives and, and tax credits they may be eligible for. Um, and then <clears throat> and then eventually also be able to tell them based on their building characteristics with some degree of accuracy what their what their savings may be so that we can start to paint this picture of you know, the economic benefits and then also layer in perhaps some of the health benefits that could come from reduced indoor air pollution, um, economic benefits to the community. There's a lot of there's a lot of sort of follow on benefits to building electrification that we're hoping to, again, just to tell stories about and make it make it in easy and accessible for people without overwhelming them with information. And at the end of it all, um, no matter what we say, uh, it's still up to a homeowner uh, who wants to make this transition to go get a qualified contractor in their home who they can trust, and probably several of them, to give a range of quotes and get a better understanding of the realities of their home and, um, you know, what actual work needs to get done. Because, you know, whatever statistical models we come up with will only ever be so accurate, right? And ultimately, it's it's about the actual building you're in and um, and and what what products are available to you and how much and to some degree how much you want to spend versus how much you want you know what your payback periods are and all all that down the road steve one of the things i think we haven't really level set on 
what it what the Inflation Reduction Act means yet, and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the same thing. Uh, we haven't really level set on what that all means for our energy trans trans transition. Um, in your mind, as you've like run the built the model for the calculator and kind of evaluated in your own life your electrification of the next thing. What's the surprise? Like, what's your? Is there anything like that stands out? as like this is actually a big game changer when it comes to electrifying, and and why is it your service upgrades? Sorry, why is it your service? <laughs> why is your breaker panel? Why is it your? I have a hypothesis. It's a breaker panel. We don't understand how much cost goes into getting the breaker panel, and the fact that the breaker panel has some rebates and pro like you get tax credits for that. People haven't level set with how big of an impact that is. That's just a hypothesis. But what what for you is it? Um, I, that's certainly one of them. I mean, a lot of you know, um, panel size is is a <laughs> a determining factor for a lot of upgrades. Um, there, I mean, there are also smart panels and things out there that manage load without the need for a service upgrade. So there's there are plenty of case studies now of homes with 100 amp or 150 amp service that are able to fully electrify. Um, and I can get a rebate or tax credit for that too. Is that right? Uh, in the in the rebate program, uh, those are covered. I'm not sure if the tax credits cover those or not. They may. Um, but yeah, those. So those. There are lots of solutions. I think. Um, the biggest surprise for me is less to do with the transition itself, but the way um, I, the way the market is already starting to respond to some of the, I don't even know if they're edge cases, but some of the harder challenges for electrification. So one of the big ones is um, bringing service to a water heater for a heat pump. And now there's a product out there that plugs into a 120 volt outlet. So if you have a 10 amp circuit, running or i think it's a 10 amp circuit running to anywhere in your utility room uh there's i think it's ream that has this 120 volt uh, plug-in heat pump water heater that's a response to a market need that would otherwise have been you know difficult to address right you have if you don't have that type of product on the market you have to get an electrician in all the time to install 240 volt circuit over to where your water heater is and that adds cost and complexity to the project so so now we have options already on the market today that are responding to real needs of real homes that weren't addressed previously. Um, there's also news of, of induction stoves coming out with batteries where the warming drawer would be so that you can plug those into a 120 volt outlet. And then when the power goes out, you plug your fridge into it and you can run your fridge on backup power for a week or so. I'm not sure, but um, there, you know, there's lots of scope for innovation on the technology side that we have and we're barely scratching the surface of right now. Um, and I think that's that's the most exciting thing and wherever where I've been pleasantly surprised so far. That's market transformation. I saw a, a combined heat pump, washer and dryer, uh, which I thought was absolutely cool and amazing. Daniel, for you, what is is there anything that like in level setting our transition and 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 these these new rebate programs and all the in tax incentives. Is there anything in there that's been like surprising or really interesting to you? Oh, um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, well, first, before I'm going to say that there is a uh, tax credits panel upgrades do count up to 30% of project cost, 600 up to $600. So there you go. Thank you. Um, there you go. <laughs> right off the press. Um, I just, 
I'm going to completely flub this question. Can we just like edit this whole cut thing it. section out? Yeah, we can totally cut it out. We can I... totally cut the whole thing out. It doesn't matter. It's fine. <laughs> and it's panel upgrades. The answer is it's panel upgrades. I That's got so big... distracted by your hypothesis on panel upgrades that I can't. I'm just like, what? Um, so, th- yeah, now I can't think of anything but panel upgrades. Um <laughs> what I do all day. All I think about is panel upgrades all but day. But I don't – why? <laughs> because I think it's a, a huge limiting factor. It's a big deal. Yes. And I actually think Steve's point about the market transformation of appliances is adapting to what is – I what I just kept me up at night. So, so here's, my here's, another, here's another thing I'll throw on the table. It's – we all – like all of us approach this – most of us approach this question. Maybe Danielle doesn't because she thinks about this from a national level. Uh, most most people approach the thought about electrification from like, what does it mean for me? But, but there's also a question, which is, what does it mean in my community or where I live, right? So as a u- electric utility or a, commu- a mayor or someone who's, you know, in a state energy office, if you look across a collection of buildings, you have different ways of thinking about the Inflation Reduction Act and sort of where to begin, because maybe my home or your home isn't ready today because of whatever set of reasons, or it's not cost effective, or gas prices are really heavily subsidized, so it's never going to be cost of you know it's not maybe not never, but not anytime soon will it be cost effective to uh, transition to electric where you live. But there may be people who have oil heat uh, in that same community or electric resistance heat, which is way more expensive than a heat pump for whom it would be cost effective to make a transition today. So if you start thinking also, not just about the individual home that you're familiar, most familiar with, but but the challenge of making this transition happen regionally or nationally or within a utility service area, then you can ask different types of questions, which is like, well, for, you know, maybe not is this house cost effective, but which are the houses for which it is most cost effective to do this today? Um, Also, we have a challenge nationally of not leaving people behind, right? So there are, there's a huge risk of if we don't transition low and moderate income households and help them transition uh, off the gas network um, quickly uh, at the same pace as everyone else at a minimum, then they could be left holding the bag for infrastructure costs for the next, you know, hundred years, and that would be tragic and uh, really detrimental to people's economic health. So, um, so community leaders, utilities, state energy offices can sort of focus their efforts on people who, you know, again, for whom it's cost effective today and it makes sense to do things now, and for whom there's a large, like a, a sort of an outsized risk of being left behind if they don't act. That's the great thing about the rebates program in the Inflation Reduction Act. It's really focused on low-income households for that reason, um, and that's part of why you know DOE and the the states are working so hard to sort of get those funds out the door and get them directed towards the right you know the right homes and the right communities. You, you see, we we've talked about that before on uh, on this podcast, like the 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 fact that that transition has to be just, and you don't want to leave um, the folks who are um, less able to pay for electricity holding the bag. Uh, I wonder, uh, Danielle, you talked about there's this formula for doling out this money to the different states, but is that even a factor? Like, um, you know, which states has has the higher percentage of low-income um, customers or are the ones that are low-income and 
um, reliant on natural gas? Like, are, or is it strictly population-based um, uh, allocation? Yeah, the the funding is not connected to the um, income distribution, but the the total amount of funding, but how the states can allocate their pot of funding, their individual amount, is there is requirements within the um, within the guidance that you have to con- you have to give a, a certain portion to low income, a certain portion to multifamily. And so, and it's um, significantly higher than I would say what most utility programs are doing currently. So it's really gonna raise the bar on um, getting to those low and moderate income communities. Well, you know, I'm just curious um, how, I don't know, I'll put this in my unfair question because I have some thoughts about that, but I don't want to delay us. We can keep going. Yeah, put it in the unfair questions. (laughs) This is a good transition because the next topic on best practices for electrification does touch on the need to to reach uh, these communities. So take it away, Almas. All right. The American Council for Energy Efficient Economies for an Energy Efficient Economies 2022 report on best practices in electrification found among other conclusions that one, where possible, electrification programs, measures and incentives should be braided into existing energy efficiency programs to increase their reach and engagement with hard to reach customer groups such as low income and multifamily households. And number two, Contractors play a key role in building electrification, expanding the workforce and educating and motivating contractors to install and service heat pumps is a critical strategy for scaling up capacity for electrification in buildings. So um, with these two conclusions, Danielle, the U.S. Department of Energy helped fund the ACEEE study, and you shared it with Paul and me. What other important considerations um, are in the report that you'd want to highlight? Yeah. Well, first, um, thanks for highlighting the braiding. Um, I think if there was one word uh, that I have said, maybe more than any other word I thought I was going to say this year, it's braiding um, and the importance of <laughs> this, how all of these different pots of money are going to come together. So um, yeah, that's that's really important. Um, one of the key takeaways for me in that study is, like I said earlier, efficiency first. That's the foundation. Um, I think the study does a really nice job of highlighting um, the awareness for unintended impacts to low and moderate income uh, homeowners. You know, homeowners and renters are likely to have the most to gain, um, but also face greater risks because the uh, these are, you know, big projects, potentially higher cost installations. They may not have access to the tax credits. Um, and if we aren't careful, uh, potentially higher energy bills in regions where rates are higher than gas. So it's just something we always need to be aware of as we're moving in this transition um, is is to protect the homeowners and to protect the renters. We don't want those costs to get passed um, on to renters at well. And our requirements do have um, uh, language about protecting uh, renters. Um, and the only other thing that I'll add is that uh, they highlight um, policies and regulations and where those policies can be limiting um, 
in electrification. Uh, so cost effectiveness can be an issue um, with these high cost projects. Uh, fuel switching can be a sensitive topic among some states. So we have to be kind of willing to acknowledge those and take them on um, and get creative um, and potentially utilities and states working together to align their savings goals with the state policy carbon climate electrification goals. Anything you want to add, Steve? Yeah, I, I have a personal favorite uh, in that report, uh, which references a concept that I wrote a paper on a couple of years ago around the opportunity. And this, I think, this is particularly useful uh, conversation or salient for the for the Northwest is this idea of replacing air conditioners with heat pumps uh, or installing heat pumps when you have to add AC to a house instead of installing just an air conditioner. You um, cannot hear me nod enough. Like my <laughs> nodding is so loud right now. This I have God. a brother-in-law who installed an air conditioning unit. And I'm like, what? who am I in your life that you installed an air conditioning unit and upgraded your natural gas furnace? What oh do I mean God. to you in your life that that is what you're the choice you made? Anyway, I'm sorry, Steve. The nodding was too loud. Yeah. Um, this this is a concept. I, I mean, it's near and dear to me, um, and it's such an easy win for uh, for a lot of people. Who again, it's it's maybe the equivalent of the portable induction hot plate that you can buy for seventy dollars. It's not that cheap, but you know, for a few hundred dollars, maybe more, you can uh, or actually at the manufacturer scale, it's a few hundred dollars of additional parts that obviously gets. Um, marked up by the time it gets to the consumer. So maybe it's $1,000 more, something of that nature. Um, but if you're a utility program, you could incentivize those manufacturers to only produce heat pumps instead of air conditioners. And you've now turned sort of a one-trick air conditioner into a two-trick air conditioner, which is that it can provide heat. And if you have gas uh, or oil or anything that's expensive to heat your home with, you now have two options instead of one. Uh, you can arbitrage your energy costs. If it feels like it's cheaper to use electricity one day, use electricity. It just opens the door and makes electrification of heating, space heating in particular, so much more accessible and easily achievable for people who would otherwise just be putting in an air conditioner. They now, you get more, you get two options instead of one. Uh, if you use it well, you're probably going to save a lot of money. You're definitely going to save a lot of fossil fuel combustion and greenhouse gas emissions, no matter what, as long every time you use that heat pump, because you've got this three or 400, you know, percent efficiency gain over, uh, the best that a, a gas furnace is ever going to be able to do. Right. Um, and it's such an easy, such an easy win. Um, I'm glad to see it repeated here by ACEEE. For the cost of a reversing valve, you can get right. so, you can make your life so much more comfortable. Yeah. Uh, then the, I think we're ready to hit the next one because I think the other element we highlighted was workforce, which is our next topic. So why don't we hit that one, Amos? All right. On September 21st, the Biden administration announced the American Climate Corps, a quote workforce training and service initiative that will ensure more young people have access to the skills-based training necessary for good-paying careers in the clean energy and climate resilience economy, end quote. This is in addition to the Department of Energy's Clean Energy Corps, which, quote, is comprised of the, st of the staff of more than a dozen offices across Department of Energy, current staff and new hires, all working together to research, develop, demonstrate and deploy solutions to the world's greatest challenge, end quote. 
The ACEEE report highlighted the workforce needed to deploy electrification programs. Danielle, what areas do you want the climate and energy workforce, workforce to work, focus on first? What do I want them to focus on first? Uh, well, I think every time we talk to the states, the, one of the top three things they say is, uh, we don't have enough contractors. We don't even have enough contractors to run our weatherization programs. We don't have enough contractors to, like, there's a nine-month backlog in some states. So we need more contractors, and they need to uh, be able to want to work in this field. There needs to be sustainable work. There needs to be good wages. There needs It needs to be um, high-quality work. And so that is resoundingly what I hear um, is the number one thing is qualified contractors out in the field across the country. Some places don't, some of these small towns, they're just like, we don't have anybody. So um, figuring out where they're needed and um, really tapping into the training funds, both what was just announced and we also have a sister provision, the contractor training grants program, which is $200 million going also to states to really try to, to train up the workforce. Steve, so I know Rewiring America is a big workforce initiative and, and is big focus of there. What, what's your perspective, too? I, I couldn't agree more on the need for uh, higher wages. These are, you know, the technologies we're talking about for HVAC uh, contractors in particular require a lo lot more sophistication to put in. These are higher skilled jobs that require a higher degree of care to do well. Um, and, you know, wages and the market should sort of recognize and respect that. I think it's hard to get there, uh, unfortunately, because certification and licensing requirements are uh, non-existent in a lot of places. There's there's not a lot of, um, you know, there's not a lot to hold contractors accountable to. So maybe this is a place where utilities and program administrators can step in and start um, asking for things like Energy Star verified installations on HVAC projects and some of these higher quality you know, checklist, uh, well-informed stand, you know, holding people to standards that are well-informed by the industry um, and are, you know, eminently achievable because they're in practice in lots of places in the country, but not everywhere, right? So um, that'll have, I think, a positive effect on, on wages. It'll bring more people into the industry. Um, it'll make those jobs more appealing. Um, obviously, the, the training and the apprenticeship programs and all of this needs to catch up to that as well. There's lots of anecdotes out there of um, trade schools or community colleges, training programs for HVAC that have 30-year-old equipment uh, in their labs and no way of training people on the things that we hope they're asking for in the near future. So that's not, you know, that won't lead to um, well-prepared graduates um, and we'll just continue to create roadblocks to the kind of transition we need to see in, in workforce. This seems like to me, it just to me, the, the most fixable problem ever and I and I wonder what the barrier is is it really you mentioned like folks have to actually want to do this work is it really that it's it's just not something that kids think about as a career path um or, or what really is the barrier because I feel like this is this is so fixable it like, would seem to be. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not yeah <laughs> 
I'm no, I'm not an expert in this issue. I'll say, let me say that very clearly. Um, we've thought about it a bit. There are people who know a lot more about this than me, but certainly, I mean, wages and benefits matter to people, right? You, yeah. Um, yeah. you people want jobs that they can make a good living from and that are sort of commensurate with the skills that they bring to it. And I feel like we're not aligned around that right now. Um, maybe it's a legacy of uh, some of the fossil fuel equipment, which just you can put an oversized furnace in and blast air through ductwork and heat a home without a lot of um, building science required to do it well and make sure that energy bills are not through the roof. Uh, you can't necessarily do the same thing with a heat pump in a lot of places. So you have, you know, it's it's sort of a alignment around the fact that these are more sophisticated devices that just take more care and quality to, to do well, to really deliver the benefits that they can easily deliver. Um, but, but that hopefully that, you know, hopefully this is a, uh, something that we can align around as a country and find ways to reward people for their skills. And in, in some of these industries that are, are definitely, you know, in need of, of higher skilled, higher skilled people who, who want these jobs and want to make money for, for the skills that they bring to the table. Danielle, I think you're a member of the clean energy core. Am I right about that? Any, any uh, advice or recommendations for it? Yes, I am an alum of the Clean Energy Corps. I can't speak highly enough about, um, well, the, first, there's just, so contractor jobs for sure, but then there's so many other jobs around this, right, in program design and program implementation at the federal level, at the state level. Like, the, there's just going to be so many jobs coming, and um, getting your resume in the Clean Energy Corps is a great way to get your name in that hat. We are, all of the new, all of the DOE organizations are looking through the Clean Energy Corps. Um, you know, that's how I got hired. And I am just a girl from Idaho that's now working for DC, like DOE, right in policy. And it's just so exciting, the opportunities um, that are better there for us. So I, I put so your resume glad. in. I am so glad you mentioned that, um, Danielle. Um, does does the Clean Energy Corps accept um, like fresh out of high school folks or is it mostly technical people? Um, like, yeah, what kind of people does that core accept? So I think I'd have to look into more of the details of that newest new program, the training program and the requirements there. But um, for the Clean Energy Corps, as of right now, there's fellowship programs all the way up to so internships, fellowships, all the way up to full time positions. So um, across a range of experience. Uh, yeah, for sure. Good stuff. Great stuff. I'm always right. hopeful about the future workforce. Yes. Yes. That's a it's a good place to put your hope. I think we're ready to take it after a quick break. We'll come back for Almaz's unfair question of the week. Public Power Underground is brought to you by NWPPA. 
The Northwest Public Power Association believes in the power of training and education. Every year, more than 6,500 public power employees learn and network at our classes, webinars, workshops, and conferences. NWPPA offers more than 200 event, 250 events, wowzer, to choose from in areas such as leadership, engineering, operations, accounting, and finance, communications, and many more. Sometimes this very podcast, Public Power Underground, is broadcast live from one of our events. We call that being more powerful together. What will you learn this year? Find an event that's right for you at nwppa.org forward slash catalog. That's nwppa.org forward slash catalog. Okay, up next is uh, Today I Learned segment or TIL. I call Almaz's insightful question of the week where Almaz asks our guests unfair, unfiltered, and unscripted question. What do you got for us this week, Almaz? So here's the thing. Um, this is kind of going back to when you were talking about the way we, we sort of um, allocate the incentives or the, the rebates from these different programs. And I'm always sensitive to the fact that there's like there just there's bound to be some waste in there somewhere. And I always use myself as an example because I got several thousand dollars in incentives when I installed my heat pump. Um, and I was going to do that just like you know, Paul was saying for the AC. It's getting hot out here and I needed an AC. And it, was, oh, it, it was not going to matter how much. If I got zero, I was still going to do that. And I always I, like I keep thinking, who could have used that four thousand dollars that I got? Um, so my question is, if there's any way, if you have any thoughts about ways that we can um, reduce that the electrification incentives that we're giving to people who don't need that nudge and reallocate those dollars where they'll actually make a difference. And we can like we need to right, electrify a billion things. Giving me money didn't actually get us closer to that number. It kept us on track to what we were going to have um, already. So I'm just curious for both of you, like, um, it, do you have ideas about how that the money that we do have available for incentives and rebates, ways that we can ensure that the that the peak that that is going to go where it matters and actually make the biggest nudges. You're a, you're a free rider, Thomas. <laughs> I am, and I don't like it. Yeah, so, I don't like it. I so here's my thought on this: is that the yes, there's close to $9 billion available across these rebate programs. That $9 billion is actually not gonna go as far as it, you might think $9 billion will go because projects are expensive. So it's gonna yeah. probably do a few hundred thousand uh, installations around the country. So I don't. there's no reason in my mind why 100% of that money couldn't be directed to low-income households. Um, there's more than enough low-income households who will benefit and save money today in the country in every state because they have like i said you know whether it's electric resistance heating or oil heat or one of these things that's super expensive they're you know high probability of being like great reaping great benefits from from these incentives and i i think there's plenty you know there's enough there's enough of those homes that all that money could go to that market segment alone and chances are most of those folks are would not have been making those choices in the absence of the incentives right that's to me is the most direct way to, to address your question. Um, but I do, I also, and, and the reason is because those funds are capped, right? There's the $9 billion is the $9 billion. And I don't expect our Congress to re-up that in its current state of affairs. Um, 
the tax credits are uncapped and available to everyone. So really, there's no um, there's no sort of waste, if you want to think about it that way, in that sense, because anyone who makes an efficiency upgrade to their home with a qualifying project can claim that tax credit and get that benefit. And all that does is reduce costs for everybody with a tax liability. And that should just be an ongoing, you know, there's no like trade-off versus, you know, one one home versus the next because everybody's eligible and there's no cap on that funding. So, so yeah, my vote would be for uh, putting all the rebate money where it's most needed, which is in the, the low income segment. Interesting. Yeah, I like I couldn't agree more. And um, I think this is an area where, you know, each state is going to approach this a little bit differently. Um, I think that the income component is incredibly important and a huge priority in these programs. Um, like I said, at least 40 percent is going to need to go to a justice uh, a disadvantaged community, uh, Justice 40 community, um, and 10% multifamily. That varies a little bit by state by state, but it's around 40%. So um, right there, like that's that's the minimum and states can only, can just go up if they need to. Um, and then there's also gonna be up to the states on if there's other specific communities um, or areas or types of homes that they wanna target. Um, that they want to do specific outreach to. Um, we really encourage uh, states to work with their utilities to um, to, to get uh, some kind of consumer utility data access, so they can you can start to find those really high energy users in those disadvantaged communities that you can really try to make the most of the limited funds that are available. So get niche, get targeted, get focused on your policy goals, and then you can really maximize those rebates. So thank, thank you both for, for your answers. Um, I, I, I did have a comment. I'm not going to make this a question. I'm just going to There was only supposed to be one unscripted question. <laughs> I can't handle another one. No. <laughs> So this is this is this is just a what if? So um, so the federal government has this Justice Forty initiative that has 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 said that forty percent of the the benefits have to go to the disadvantaged communities. Um, what an opportunity it was for the for the federal government to model to the states how that might be done in just the way they allocated that funding to the states. Um, so I, I just, I don't know who, like if you can pass that up to folks at the Department of Energy, um, but that was, that, was a, that was a great opportunity for, for the federal government to, to model that to the states. Um, and I wish we, we had done that. Um, but anyway, that's a comment, that's not a question. It was just something that I thought about as you were talking about the way that we allocate these funding. Well, I'm gonna name drop right now, you guys, but credit to Secretary of Energy, uh, Jennifer Granholm um, on that, because she, it, she was the ultimate decision maker. And um, she was like, yes, we are, this will be, this is the minimum and it's, it's up from there, so yeah. I happen to be in a meeting with her, you guys. No big deal, but you know. No big deal. No big deal. <laughs> it's me and my friend Jennifer. Nice. Yes. What's up, Jen? Yeah. Oh, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Okay, well, we got one last lightning round segment as we close it out. It's our version of King for a Day or Queen for a Day, which we've done as FERC for a Day, PUC for a Day, and Legislator for a Day. This version I'm calling Electrician for a Day. And the question is, what's one thing you'd electrify if you were an electrician with unlimited resources? Steve, I'll start with you. Electrician for a day, what would you do? Can I, I was hoping you'd let me be a PUC for the day because I think that's where the biggest opportunity lies. But uh, I, I guess you if can I do both, you could do both. I do, do both. both. I, if I was a PUC for a day, I would start uh, integrated planning across my gas and electric utilities so I could figure out a way to stop investing ratepayer funds in new gas infrastructure that's hopefully not going to be needed in the next 25 years uh, and finding, you know, ways that people won't have to pay for that for the next 100 years because there's a lot of money, billions, tens of billions of dollars going into uh, gas utility infrastructure these days that should be used for repair, not replace, um, and instead directed uh, towards electrification and our climate goals. Um, and I think that's a huge missed opportunity at the PUC level. If I were an electrician, uh, what would I do with unlimited resources? I would uh, go around and figure out exactly which homes in a community needed service upgrades ahead of time uh, and make panel information available to the public so we knew how to plan for service upgrades more holistically and could match that up with our uh, distribution system and see where you know where the transformer upgrades need to happen to support electrification and sort of get a holistic view of the infrastructure side on the electrical Awesome. Yes. It's service panels. See that? See that, Daniel? That's service I, panels. Um, That's a perfect take. It, uh, yep. it all comes back full circle. <laughs> That's all comes back. What's yours, Daniel? All right. I'm taking this also. He got to go do PUC, so I'm also taking this on a little bit of a different. Um, <laughs> do it. So I was thinking about this in terms of like inventing new like electrified things. Because like as I was going through the list, I was like, man, almost everything's electrified now. Like even your leaf blower, right? So I was like, oh, but what would I, what do I wish I could electrify in my life? Um, and what I've decided is um, that I, we need the electric stick shift vehicle because there is nothing more I want to give up. I, I will hold my stick shift cart. Like you will pry it from me because I need a clutch in my life. I have and one. Same. And I am at a literal, like I am at a moral conflict of my stick shift and an EV. And so can someone please, even if it's like, doesn't even do anything, even if it's just a mat, like it's like, like there's no just point three to pedals. it. Just, you need, you need three pedals. Let me shift. So that, that's my answer. I love it. Dan, I Amaz, what's yours? I would have never guessed that in a million years. Daniel, you're amazing. That's funny. I'm going to say cargo Real driving. I'm, I'm going to say, and I know, yeah, you're fine. I'm going to say cargo ships. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a, that's a great one, Almaz. That and, was a. Not when they're just at shore. I mean, when, while, and I don't even know if that's possible. I mean, well, of course it's not now, but that's what I would electrify. That's perfect. I'm going to also I'm going to take Danielle's uh, like side thing, which isn't really a serious thing, but it's like a very specific thing for me. Uh, fire pits, outdoor fire pits. I would electrify, come up with a niche bespoke outdoor fire pit because I enjoy sitting around a fire pit with my friends and the heat that comes off of it. And, you know, you aren't going to have flames, but I bet I could make some like incandescent light bulbs that emit heat and like looks pretty. That would be my thing. 
I think the Barbie movie had those. Do you guys remember that fire pit scene? I'm pretty sure they cracked that nut. Yeah. You called me out. You called me out. I haven't seen it yet. I need to put it on the list. I haven't seen it yet. Podcast over. Okay. Go watch Barbie movie. Go watch Barbie movie. That's all the topics we're covering this week. Before Danielle's closing thoughts, I just want to say thank you to our wonderful co-stars. Uh, thank you so much, Steve. Did you enjoy this? Was this was this fun? I did. And, you know, I've, throughout this conversation, I've been reflecting on the fact that earlier in the conversation, I said the word, put your foot on the gas pedal. And it's just this, like, sticky indicator of how deep fossil fuels are in our collective uh, consciousness that I, you know, I'm an electrification advocate. I still throw fossil fuel based analogies around in my daily speech and then regret them later. Uh, you know, we got a lot of work to do. Uh, so it's great to have the opportunity to talk about it, uh, talk about it with you uh, all today. And uh, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I appreciate your electrification enthusiasm and your intention to get that out of your vocabulary. So thank you, Steve. <laughs> Danielle, was this fun? Did you enjoy this? Are you going to send Crystal a text saying you regret it after this? Or are you excited? Oh, my God. No. I I'm we're, now we're like Chris and I are gonna swap like we'll be like oh my god what about this and then when we're, when this happened like yeah we're gonna swap stories about our experiences although she's like a she's like an old pro at this so that's right yeah. she's yeah she's great but you did great thank you I, I really appreciate you coming on I hope you enjoyed it it was so fun good Amaz or do you feel valued appreciated seen and heard and all the good things. Paul, this, this, I could not have spent my sabbatical year doing anything better. So, yes, I have, have been feeling appreciated this entire year. Thank yeah. you. And I'm, I'm ready for a break. I expect you are, too. Uh, so we're at least going to take a break, and maybe we'll come back. Hopefully we'll come back, but there'll at least be a break after this. So I enjoyed it, too. Breaks are good. Yeah. Yep, I need a break for sure. <laughs> Okay, to our listeners, while you aren't seen or heard, you are valued and appreciated. Public Power Underground is a production of News Data and Seattle City Light. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletter to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Now we're going to close it out with closing thoughts from Danielle Walker. I think all of us in the Northwest have had a very personal experience uh, with climate change in some way in recent years, heat dome, fires. Uh, and these hands-on experiences make us feel both an incredible sense of urgency um, and also I think the thought of, you know, what can, how am I gonna individually contribute um, and do something that's gonna actually make a real impact? Um, and so how lucky are we that we have this moment with all of this momentum and attention and new significant funding in our industry right now to make a real difference. Um, and not just to decarbonize, but to support low-income families by reducing their energy burden, to make homes more comfortable and more resilient in the face of climate change, to leverage energy efficiency to support even more energy resource planning, and to grow and support a workforce of contractors, manufacturers, distributors, and implementers. Um, so what an incredible time to be able to actively engage and make a difference in our communities um, and for the planet and contribute towards those one billion machines. Um, I can't wait to see how all of us in the Northwest tackle this challenge 
and take advantage of the support and the funding that we all have um, behind us and in front of us uh, right now. So there's never been a better time to be to join and to be a part of this energy efficiency world. So thanks. We started in hard times to bring us all in Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on enthusiasts, roll on Public Power Underground is a production of Seattle City Light and News Data. The views expressed here are our own and not the official views of Seattle City Light, Tacoma Power, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. Today's episode was written and produced by Paul Dockery and Almaz Nagash, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources with sound mixing by Lucas Smith and video editing by Brendan Delzer. If you have an idea for a podcast and just need help producing it, reach out to our friends at Pioneer Utility Resources for excellent production, editing, and publication. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. You can find Public Power Underground on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please share with electric utility enthusiasts like us and give us a rating and review on your app of choice if you enjoyed the content. It helps other electric utility enthusiasts like us find us. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll.